Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, welcome back to the Pediatric Ethics Podcast. I'm John Lantos. We're coming to you from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, and the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center. On these podcasts, we talk to uh, experts in various aspects of pediatric bioethics, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Annie Jean-Vier, who is an associate professor in the Department of Peds at University of Montreal and a neonatologist and clinical researcher at Hospital Saint-Justine there. She's also the mother of uh, Violette, who was born very prematurely, and she's written a remarkable book about the experience of being a neonatologist and having a tiny preemie in the NICU. The book is called Breathe, Baby, Breathe. It was published by the University of Toronto uh, Press just last year. Welcome, Annie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about um, why you wrote this book. Well, I decided to write a book that um, would have helped me as a parent and that could also help clinicians understand the parent perspective. When I had Violette, I was already a parent of a a quote-unquote normal term child. Um, I was a neonatologist and I was finishing my PhD in bioethics. Um, But I felt extremely lost as a parent, uh, as an NICU parent. I didn't feel like a parent. I didn't burst with love for my baby. I felt like I was in a totally alien world, although I had spent hours in that same NICU. I mean, I knew about the respirator, how Violet worked, the TPN, but um, I really didn't know how to be the mother of a baby on a respirator. What do you think made it so strange and different? Well, the world is... I think it's a different disease to the NICU or disease conditions because machines do what your body's supposed to do. Um, I also had an incompetent cervix, but I was told not to feel guilty about that. <laughs> um, and um, and what really helped me is not um, my medical knowledge or any kind of facts that I knew very well, but the stories other parents had told me. Um, when I was a neonatologist and I had listened to how they felt and how they felt they were crazy and when is this going to end. Um, and and that, that really is what gave me faith that one day this, this tiny gelatinous blob would actually become a real child, my daughter. I mean, I knew preemies became real children, but I didn't feel it. And it's really the parents' stories that helped me. Um, so I think by... I thought when when I emptied my computer when I was changing in institutions, I found a toxic shit folder that <laughs> had many of the things I had written um, in these moments of distress, trauma, or joy um, in the roller coaster. And I realized this is what I used to help parents. Some of these sentences, um, some of them which had swear words, um, and also stories of other parents. I didn't just want my story to be out there because it's a unique story and all stories are different and all parents are different. So I tried to have a blend of my stories, other stories, and academic chapters. So you were really uh, keeping a journal while uh, Violette was in the NICU, but uh, you put it away for a while. 
and then came back to it years later? Yeah, I think I didn't really realize I was keeping a journal. <laughs> I don't know. I, I never saw myself like, you know, the unicorn diary um, with stickers at the end of the day. Um, and I was actually writing to my computer. And I, I actually don't remember writing most of the things I wrote. Um, I think I was um, too much in shock or stress or distress. And it was kind of, I guess, a release mechanism to speak about things I was afraid to speak about others, to others about. That, that's pretty amazing. How, how long was it before you could open that folder again? I actually f- fell on it accidentally. When I switched institutions and I was asked to empty my computer, I found that toxic shit folder. So that was three years later. Um, a lot of it was written in English because um, my first... Um, Language is French, but I think most of the things were too hard for me to say in English. Um, to I guess that's my interpretation. Um, so it wasn't even translated by me because it was too hard to relive some of these moments. And some of the things I said were very crude. Um, so it was kind of translated by somebody else. Um, and then readapted by me. What was the biggest surprise when you read uh, what you'd written and then forgotten about? Well, some of the very raw and crude emotions. Um, hmm. Well, some of the things are not published. It's just you know, three pages of swear words. So some of the things were <laughs> incomprehensible. Um, also, what was hard to read um, is how I didn't love my daughter or the doubts I had that I loved her, um, how I didn't find her beautiful, how I um, didn't feel like a parent, how I didn't like to hold my daughter. Um, Things we don't often speak about in the neonatal world um, and that are very hard to actually speak about to say, well, I don't love my daughter. Is this normal? Um, But when you actually tell parents it's normal not to feel like a parent, some of them will open up. And do you think that's because the NICU environment is so alienating, so foreign, so scary? Well, I didn't. That, that's what's funny is I didn't find it scary. I can intubate kids, and I I'm not scared of babies, and I'm not scared <laughs> of the NICU. It's my where I work. But I think it's a, it's different. You kind of become a parent in a very abnormal way. You don't know your child yet. Um, um, there's no relationship. It's very hard to bond. Um, the child is not smiling. There's no reciprocity yet. And mm-hmm. I think for other disease processes, that happens before, you know, a child has an accident, but, you know, he's Thomas and he likes this and that, and he likes to be soothed with that specific song and held in this manner. And there's ways that you learn to be a parent to a specific children that you become a parent of a baby who also looks strange. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not very cute babies, the extreme preterms. And and it's very hard to to find yourself also in a situation where you know because of your body malfunction, your baby's there, and now technology's playing the mother role. Mm -hmm. I think that that's all important aspects. And in addition to writing the book, um, you've also done a bunch of research where you've talked to other parents. What what have you discovered from that work? Um, from the work of how they feel or the parental perspective? Yeah. Um, 
Well, what I've discovered is we're very factual in in um, neonatology about describing, um, often describing the field and the children with deficits, um, death and disability, as opposed to survival and quality of life. Mm-hmm. And what you ask parents about what is important, it's very different often to what doctors think parents think is important. Um, Hmm. So, for example, all the facts that we give parents wanting to help them um, in a standardized fashion, parents often want personalized information. What does that mean for them? So, um, for example, the percent risk of cerebral palsy is 8% when you're born less than 28 weeks. We'll try to tell this to parents using pictograms, and, um, and but what does cerebral palsy mean for that family? And what family you want to know and what I wanted to know as a neonatologist and realized there's not many uh, people who had examined that, there's Sarosh Segal who had examined that, is will she be happy? Will she have friends? Will she be independent? How can I be a parent of the disabled kid? What do other parents do? Um, How can I prepare in a practical sense? So not just a tag of medical deficits, but also the functionality, what what it means for the baby and the family unit. In in an optimistic fashion, too, as well as realistic, to say, you know, it'll be okay one day. Um, You're stronger than you think, and and you'll be able to rewrite your story, because most of us are. But the way it works in neonatology is very pessimistic and and scary. Um, even as a parent who knew all the statistics, it's always presented uh, in a glass half empty kind of fashion. So where do you start now when you're going in as the neonatologist talking to someone who's in labor at 23 or 24 weeks? What's your opening line? Um, well, I I say why I'm here. Most parents think um, they don't know what a neonatologist is. They think it's a kind of religion sometimes. Um, (laughs) Why I'm there doesn't mean that they'll deliver prematurely. Um, Do Mm. they have a name? What do they know about why they're there and why I'm here and what is important for them to know? Um, And often with just these three um, questions we're able to have uh, some kind of dialogue, um, mm-hmm. but also what scares them the most, um, what can I do to help, and to actually personalize the consultation. Some parents want a lot of information. Other parents want um, just basic facts, what kind of parent are you, and to personalize the decision. Um, I, I think we, we really uh, rightly shun away from paternalism, hardcore paternalism. But um, many parents want us to be paternalistic. And I, I think... In what you know, way? Well, <clears throat> many parents don't want, in my research, for example, on trisomy 13 and 18, um, about half the parents didn't want to make life and death decisions. Um, they wanted the doctor to make them? They wanted the doctor to make them, um, or another family member, or... Um, a religious representative, or and generally the medical team. Um, mm-hmm. and half the parents. The other parents, some of them didn't want anything to do with shared decision-making. They wanted to take the decisions on their own. And some of mm-hmm. them wanted shared decision-making. But in fact, less than half parents wanted shared decision-making, about 30%. Um, 
so the way I engage with parents, it's, you know, these decisions are very hard. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. Some parents say they can't take these decisions. They say it's for other person to decide. Others say they want to take decisions on their own, and others want us to make these decisions together. What kind of parent are you? And I, I think it's very, the, some parents, other parents is important, as opposed to do you want information or do you want to decide? So that as a parent, you think, okay, what, if, what are they going to think if I say, no, I don't want information, and they're wanting to speak about my child. I look like a bad parent. So you say yes, then you don't listen to the information necessarily. Um, but by acknowledging parents are all different, and all mm-hmm. these ways to decide or think um, are okay, and um, they're valid, um, then parents feel like an opening, like, oh, if other parents take these decisions that way, it's fine if I feel that way too. So a lot more listening uh, and trying to figure out what parents need rather than giving them percentages and numbers? Yeah, and and some parents want articles and and data and websites, and um, these tools are, I think, important for these parents. Mm-hmm. But I find many parents don't want that. They they also want to know what does that mean for me. One um, percent risk of deafness, but what does it mean when you're deaf, and what does it mean for a child in a family, in a family unit, in the school, and in the independence? And these are really the questions that the functionality that comes about for parents, as opposed to just the medical tag. Did you have any um, concerns about putting your story out there as a doctor and knowing that uh, maybe parents in the NICU would read about your own personal experiences and think of you differently? Well, that's why I didn't put just, I thought it was unfair to put just my story because I don't want parents to think, oh, this is how I need to act to be a good parent because she's a doctor and she did this. Well, and my husband is also a neonatologist, so imagine, like, this is what you need to do. So I thought it was important to put other stories, for example, the story of Gabrielle and Ehud and a lot of other stories that finish differently, um, to balance just my story. Um, what I found is uh, interesting. Yes, I was, I thought, <laughs> I thought about that, um, because it doesn't portray me always in a, in a very good light, um, or even as a mother. And for my daughter, too, I didn't want people at school to know all these things necessarily, so I waited for mm-hmm. her to be older and to understand the book was coming out. Um, what I've realized is uh, that it, um, for some people it increased my credibility, um, and for many it decreased it. So <laughs> I'm now seen by... A lot of, I'll say, pessimistic researchers um, as um, a very biased researcher who, because I had a premature daughter, um, I'm unable to do unbiased research Hmm. and to interpret it in an unbiased fashion. So it has both helped and, and I guess, perhaps harmed my reputation. Uh, have you read the book to Violette? Yeah, Violette actually read the book. At first, I told her about the book. When it came out, she was too young to read it on her own. She has reread it since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she read it on her own, she was uh, 13. And <laughs> I remember her saying, oh, geez, mom, this is intense. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. 
And what do you find intense about it? said, well, at least I know that, you know, I, I'm living at the end, so there's no surprises for me, but imagine for others who read it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but she had heard about it before, because um, we had questions about stopping the respirator, um, withdrawing the respirator, and, and taking very hard decisions. And uh-huh. inside there, I, 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 I I say I don't love her at first and I don't enjoy being in the unit and holding her. Uh, but she knows I love her unconditionally um, now. But she, I mean, she, it's, it was important to speak about it too before she read it. And that seems to be one of the main take-home messages of the book, that uh, you go through a roller coaster of difficult emotions when you have a critically ill baby in the NICU, but uh, they pass and doesn't mean you're a bad parent. Yeah, you're right. But it's very hard to realize that when you are a parent in the NICU, and we can make it um, much harder uh, as neonatologists of pointing out, oh, there's always a risk and there's a risk, and oh, your baby's fine today, but you know, he can still be septic tomorrow. Um, And we don't necessarily validate emotions of it's normal to feel crazy. Some parents feel crazy. You won't always feel disoriented like you do now, for example. And our rigid um, care models can sometimes uh, inadvertently harm parents. For example, a nurse who says, oh, you'll take Violet and skin to skin. You'll love it. It'll be so great. Parents, they just find this is the best moment of their life. Then you hold her and you're like, geez, I hate this. I wish I wasn't here. I don't feel like a parent. Why don't I feel like this? So the whole world of, for example, the new parent uh, integrated care can harm parents. Um, I didn't want to present my daughter on rounds. I actually know how to present on rounds. I'm a neonatologist. I didn't want to give Ashby to her. I know how to insert the tube. I'm a neonatologist. But I didn't feel that as a parent that was something I should do. But now we kind of format parents into knowing about CO2s and weight gain and, and mm. empowering them to present their kid and be there at resuscitations. And not all parents want to do that. A lot of them want to. But it's, I think these rigid care models probably make many parents disappear, like I did. I disappeared. I just showed up at change of shift for the first month of my daughter's life because I was afraid to be asked to do yet another thing I didn't want to do or be told that parents love to do whatever I didn't want to do. So is that the main take-home message here for doctors and nurses? Don't try to put parents in a box. Let them tell you what they need. Well, well, that's one of the take-home messages. Parents are all different, um, Mm -hmm. and that's the sentence, some parents, other parents, is very important. Like some parents want a lot of information and others just want to know, you know, the crude numbers of the day. And if this is normal for a 26-weeker, what kind of parent are you? Um, listening to parents, acknowledging emotions to and validating them. So important. Um, and I think for clinicians, um, empowering parents um, into what... Um, they can do and how they can reorganize their routine to what they can control and what they can't control. And I think that was the most important thing as a parent. Parent is perhaps parents want to know all the facts because they feel they can control something, but the facts doesn't, don't help you control if your baby will have a high CO2 or not. 
but you're able to control if you're there, if you pump your milk, if you sing to your kid, if you change the diaper, um, you know, when you go home, um, how you can have coping mechanisms that are healthy for you. There's a lot of things you can control. And I think empowering parents and recognizing they're strong, validating their emotions and making them realize what they can control is Mm-hmm. can be very beneficial. Well, thanks for those lessons, and thanks for writing the book. The book is called Breathe, Baby, Breathe. It's published by University of Toronto Press, and we've been talking with Dr. Annie Jean-Vier, a neonatologist, clinical ethicist, author, and mother at the University of Montreal and Hôpital Saint-Justin in Montreal. Annie, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. This is John Lantos from the Pediatric Ethics Podcast, coming to you from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, and the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center. Thanks for listening.